0: I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. When Irini Carson's best friend, Larissa, was found dead in a bathtub in the prime of her youth, a gap opened up in what Irini believed she knew about the most substantial friendship of her life. In the years that followed, Irini struggled to understand how best to mourn and remember her friend. Out of the sorrow and remembrances has come a beautiful debut memoir. The Dead Are Gods, that chronicles Irini's and Larissa's friendship and the process of accounting for everything that Larissa left behind and all that went unsaid. Documenting their mid-teens and twenties growing up in the often unforgiving and predominantly white world of modeling, Irini shows the building blocks of their friendship, the struggles that built their relationship, and the failings that made them all the more knitted together. The Dead Are Gods asks powerful questions about how we are meant to keep memories alive and honor the dead. And it balances the difficult problem of making saints of those who die young while needing real memories and histories to pay them a proper tribute. The family that Irini and Larissa made for themselves makes for an unforgettable tribute to what the best of friends really mean to the people we ultimately become. And in the telling of the origin story and development of a sine qua non friendship, Irini manages to tell a more universal story about the need to mourn and the need to pass through the sorrow into something new, a different kind of tribute. Irini Carson is a Black British writer born to a Jamaican father and a Scottish mother and raised in Southeast London. Her work is published in the Sonora Review, and she is a frequent contributor to Mother magazine. Oprah has chosen The Dead Are Gods as one of her spring reads, and Nylon magazine picked it as one of their top spring books. She lives in Northern California. Welcome to the show, Irini.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to get to talk to you about this beautiful book. It it is a strange and perhaps um not terribly meaningful coincidence, but I live uh right off of Larissa Lane. And so when I first began what? um reading this, <laughs> I was shocked and uh and found myself perhaps even more plunged into it. Oh, but that's so uh funny <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the Dead or Gods is is a memoir, as I've said, about an extraordinary friendship. You and your best friend Larissa come up together in the modeling industry and in many ways grow up together. But Larissa's life was cut short just as you were coming into a new form of adult life. What made you want to record the history of your friendship?
1: Well, first of all, when I, when I started writing it, I didn't know or think that it was going to be a book. It really was just the fevered desperate attempt of someone who was very very sad trying to gather all of our memories and it kind of spiraled out of control to where we are <laughs> in this moment now but initially it was just that kind of the bereft feeling that you have when someone dies and you realize that all of the shared memories are no, no longer shared and they're just yours and how on earth you continue with that knowledge in your heart you know
0: hmm. I I remember when my mother died, um, figuring out and, and sort of hearing for the first time the difference between mourning and melancholia and mourning being mm. the s- sadness and sorrow that comes with losing a person and which has a clear ending point, a um, uh, moving forward on with life. Whereas melancholia is when mourning becomes a permanent state of being, an inescapable and, and sometimes pathological feeling of loss. You were and perhaps still are in a state of melancholia at the loss of Larissa. And um, uh, was this memoir at all an attempt to move out of that state and into something in which you could still be remembering and not um, have quite the same kind of paralysis of sorrow?
1: Mm, yes, but I wasn't aware at the time when I was writing it that that's what I was doing. I know I can see now in hindsight that that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to make sense of um, this very tangled hit of feelings. And I, I, I just was very lost and very scared and very upset and had so many feelings that it it didn't sit in my body well. And so writing Mm -hmm. it down became the only way that I could kind of pass through it and sort it out. And um, I use this analogy in the book, but it felt a lot like kind of the mad detective from some old detective show with the clues across the wall pinned with strings from each picture and Mm. diagram and it was just the only way i knew how to um to make sense of it
0: that's so interesting having a a need to sort of solve it rather than just sort of experience it yes Um, very much so the form of the book is chapters that are bracketed by text messages and and emails between you and Larissa. Uh, were one to read only the messages, they they might be seen as just the normal, often superficial back and forth between friends. But they are given an immense depth by the chapters, which lay out the context for the messages and show how the small moments of encouragement and and love and just checking in had been earned over years of a friendship and working through difficult periods. Can you describe the way in which those very different kind of text and ways of of speaking about Larissa work together in the memoir?
1: Yeah, I think at the beginning of the book, I state that this is not a eulogy. It's not meant to be a eulogy, but in ways it kind of is. Um, And I think when I was writing about her, I felt very much like someone standing in a pulpit like explaining who she was and i needed some more person i needed more of larissa it didn't feel enough it didn't feel fleshed out and um we shared a lot of uh voice notes back and forth these amazing voice notes where you can hear her laugh and you can hear the depth of her voice, mm-hmm. and you can hear her in sadness and in joy. and i keep those and they're wonderful but they didn't translate obviously to text um, and oh, so yeah. my friend and I were kind of racking our, like, how can we, how can we make her 3D again? How can we show the fullness of her? And like you said, the the friendship that existed in the most mundane of emails um, and texts and moments and um, those, the emails just jumped out as an obvious choice. Um, it was very difficult to to pick which ones would go in because we have, I have so many. Um uh, but I, I, I felt like they did a good job of just you being able to hear her voice, you, the reader, hearing her mm. voice, and and knowing what she sounded like outside of these objective um, chapters that I wrote.
0: The that piece of the sound of it, and and the way in which I think we long for the sound of the the voice of those we've we've lost, um, but it. In, in some ways, it has a limit to its to its value, because clearly it wasn't enough for you to just listen again and again to those voice notes. Uh, so uh, were you, in in kind of writing, able to process what the sound perhaps wasn't able to give you of her?
1: I think so. I also think that in writing, you know, listening to those voice notes we were all well and good, but often I would want to say something back and I couldn't. And so in writing, it felt like the conversation was continued, um, questions were asked, some questions were answered, um, some weren't. And I was able to kind of, we were able to keep being friends um, through this like mixed media patchwork story.
0: So that's interesting. So you, you, you still feel like the friendship is, is ongoing?
1: I do, I think that, I mean, yes short answer yes obviously it's a little limited now <laughs> but I think that through writing this book there were many things that I found out about Larissa that perhaps I wouldn't have had she lived hmm. um, and through un- knowing those things about her I had to process them I had to come to terms with them I had to contextualize them and in doing so understand my friend even more and so it wasn't like this it didn't feel stagnant to me it felt like a thing that was evolving and processing and i think i mean i love her still um and i would i love her as a friend and a sister and so in that respect our sisterhood continues
0: Hmm. you write about the many gifts you feel you received from your friendship with larissa one of those was the gift of a surrogate black family You were raised Mm. by your blonde white mother with little connection to your father and his homeland of Jamaica. From the first time you were invited to stay with Larissa's family, you felt welcomed and unconditionally accepted. Can you say more about this gift and why Larissa's black family gave you a different relationship to your own race?
1: Yeah, I think I, I know that my mom did her absolute best but without the power of the internet and the ability to kind of make connections with my Jamaicanness with my Blackness with um being an alternative black person a black teenager as I was i didn't really feel uh, like i had a prototype or an understanding of who i could be in the world as this person of mixed heritage of this person who liked music where you know i'd go to shows and i would be the only one of the only black people and meeting Larissa just felt like she booted a door in (laughs) with her massive boots Mm -hmm. and was Mm -hmm. like look at all you can be and look at all that is possible I think many many teenagers have those moments mine just came in the form of of a person and yeah I can like thinking about it now I I think I know exactly what her mum's house smells like I know exactly what the taste of her Ghanaian food tasted like, I, I uh, there was just, I mean, in, in London, there's such a, such a vast, uh, diverse population, and yet still my home life was so white, um, mm-hmm. that to have this place where I felt like kin, that I could go to, um, that was a black space, was essential, essential.
0: Race is inseparable from the modeling industry, just as it is inseparable from living life as a, as a black person in the UK or the US, where you are now. Um, you write about how modeling gigs for Larissa were sometimes dependent on whether a dark-skinned model had recently been featured in a magazine or a fashion line. How did race impact yours and Larissa's experience of modeling?
1: Oh my God! Well, <laughs> um, how didn't? Very, <laughs> yeah. How no. didn't it? Well, I think um, I was first signed when I was like 14 to a modelling agency, and it felt very um, full of promise that moment. And then, as I kind of went to castings and was in rooms with. Uh, a variety of models, I began to see that I would see the same faces. If they were brown faces or black faces, I would see the same faces every every casting. And I would know that they would only pick one of us um, because that to them was representation. You just get one. Even though maybe you have 15 blonde girls, um, you can only have one brown girl because mm. that's plenty. I think it was, it was just like a, a thing. It was just, that was just how it was. It didn't, I don't remember agonizing over it too much like it felt wrong and it felt stupid but it was that was how it was it didn't feel changeable and now obviously i mean i see campaigns and commercials and the the diversity is not just limited to race it's limited it's body it's it, body size it's um ability it's so many things and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, which is really wonderful but um at the time i mean it just it just further highlighted that there was not much space for us, even in London, um, even in the fashion industry, there just wasn't a lot of space. Um, I think I had it easier as someone with lighter skin and looser curls than Larissa did, but it was difficult, and it wasn't until I moved to America and began modelling there that I got more jobs. My career in America has been way more successful than anything Mm. I did in London, so that was interesting to, to discover
0: that's very interesting and and there is I guess a, a, some irony in the fact that the very um thing that you describe the the space and the room for only one of a particular kind of black model and a particular look uh, has been for so long a problem of publishing and that you know having one memoir uh, by mm. a black writer or a, a, a particular kind of um, writer who doesn't happen to be be white is has been the de facto for a very long time and there is a you know there's a revolution brewing but like you know many of those kinds of revolutions it's slow moving so I wondered mm. if you thought at all about that uh, the irony that those two professions uh, that you that you share share that kind of you know unfortunate past
1: yeah definitely But I think to be black in this world is to realize that uh, many of the industries that <laughs> you know it's it's like uh it's it's prolific this problem and um not limited to just modeling or publishing but um i definitely even in querying my book i felt that um a lot of the feedback was that it was too sad and no one really wanted a grief memoir and could there be more you know race um discussion in it Um, and i just think that uh i think that often black writers are expected to write a certain type of thing and if it doesn't fit the narrative that, that the industry wants then it's kind of discarded but um we need diversity of stories too i think that was what was so satisfying about finding my agent about finding my wonderful publisher melville house and and feeling at home was that i felt like those my story was was valuable despite despite maybe not fitting the narrative that some people would want it to
0: hmm. that's that's wonderful to hear I think Melville House is is a, a great press I spoke yeah. recently to Jinu Chong who has a book yeah. flux out with um and it was you know he was he was thinking on a similar vein about the limitations of stories that uh mm. that people of color and who are writers are allowed to tell and that if you're yes. not offering often you know stories of pain if you're not offering mm. enough pain um and pain coming directly from from race then then there might not be room for you but it's it's interesting that you both ended up at Melville
1: yeah, yeah, they've been a they've been a really wonderful place. I feel very valued and nurtured, um, and I'm so excited about Flux. Every time I see it around, I'm in. I'm actually currently in London um, for a book. Oh, you are uh, oh. reading? Yeah, I oh, leave tomorrow, great. but um, but i I've, I've been going around bookstores signing my book. And I do do a little squeal every time I
0: I see flocks. Very excited. <laughs> oh, oh, that's wonderful. The one of my favorite moments in the Dead Are Gods is your description of the egg tempera painting process used to preserve very old paintings of religious icons. The egg is a mm. fixing agent that hardens and protects, and thus allows the painting to live on through countless generations. How is this memoir analogous to that process of representation, protection, and even iconography?
1: Mm. well that the the part that you reference is from the titular essay of the book and i um i definitely think that is kind of the the overarching message is that this is something eternal um this is something akin to understanding um which is essential when you're painting icons. My mum is an iconographer and there has to be a level of, of front facing the pain and the truth of someone's life. There has to be a level of moving towards understanding. Hmm. um, And I think that the icon is such a beautiful, you know, you see it, you can see them and they're these beautiful paintings, but the, the process of the painting, I think, is even more special. And I definitely think that the process of me writing this book was akin to painting an icon and so healing and a very spiritual experience. And so whilst I am so thrilled that the book exists and that it's in the world, um, some of the fondest moments of, of this book's life were in the Genesis and in the crafting and in the the processing of it all. It felt very it felt very religious fervor. Um by very similar to religious fervor, just desperate and mad and like a, a poor crazy monk just just trying to get it all down.
0: You say, in telling a saint's story, you must be true. You must acknowledge the holy things, yes, but you must also acknowledge the ways in which they were fallible humans, because in the fallibility lies what makes them saints. Could you talk a little bit more about how you came to the conclusion that you needed to give an unvarnished portrait of Larissa's life?
1: Mm, um, Well, as I mentioned before, I... I began this book not knowing it was going to be a book, which was, it, you know, it was just it was just catharsis for a, for a, a year or so. And then when I when I realized that it was a book, that when my my friend Steph helped me realize that it was a book, I then began to move more purposefully through writing it. And there became a moment. I got to a moment where I felt like I had ran up against a brick wall. Like I could not. Traverse it, I felt very stuck and I felt very. This is the end. This is the end for what I'm writing. I think I've reached Mm. the point of no return. And I realized that the reason it felt this way is because I was completely circumnavigating the reality of her death. And it felt like something that I couldn't talk about because I felt it would cheapen her or it was taboo or, you know, there's a stigma uh, attached and I didn't want to. taint her her legacy um Mm -hmm. and something that i came to realize was that i wasn't tainting the you know the life the lives that we lead are flawed and and broken and we do wrong things and it's not always golden and i think there's this notion of um never speaking ill of the dead but in doing so we sort of smush our dead down into these flat 2d images that are pointless to hold on to as memories because they're not true it's not the truth of it and so much of the truth of Larissa lay in things that were very painful for me to acknowledge and look at and hear and understand and so for me it felt I realized that it was essential that in telling this full picture of my dear beloved friend I had to talk about the things that were difficult um to 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 be accurate and to be truthful and to love her even more deeply because
0: loving someone's flaws is is hard. That's beautifully said. I apologize if I'm spoiling too much, but I feel that it's important for me to ask about the discovery of Larissa's addiction and the likelihood that it was her use of heroin that contributed to her death. Larissa was the person you knew best in the world. You knew all of her best and worst parts, but the addiction was something that developed in a period of time that you were more distant from each other, both geographically and in your friendship. You seem almost at times to blame yourself for not knowing about this giant thing in Larissa's life. How did you come to terms with her, with the unveiling of this addiction and what it meant to your understanding of her as a person?
1: Well, my father also was a heroin uh, user throughout my childhood. Um, He was not in my home, but... um, That was something I was aware of. And so I think a lot of the blame and guilt that I hoisted onto my own shoulders was because how would you know, how would you love someone? How could you love someone who you knew to have a heroin addiction and then love another person and not see the same signs? I just felt like I had not been paying attention so that was really difficult and I think it was it was difficult to include initially but then when I did I felt like a there was a key in the lock and something grander and more important in our friendship had been unlocked and that was like a deep understanding of who she was and of course I don't have the answers to why she used heroin or anything like that but I I don't think I need those to look at her now and say, I I understand, I get it. I think um, also one one interesting thing was that um, for a full year after Larissa's, and this isn't in the book, this is something I discovered after I finished t- writing it. Um, hmm. After Larissa's death, I didn't understand how she died. And for a long time, I, I clung to this idea of like an accidental overdose of sleeping pills. Um, and that was what I sat with and then a year after I found out it was heroin um, or I thought I did but I recently looked over all of my texts and emails with our mutual friends, um, kind of after Larissa died and I realized that I had not quite said it but it had been something that was on my mind and yet somehow my brain did the the most crazy gymnastics to protect me from the truth um, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of funny to see messages where I say you know when we thought she was missing we talked about having an intervention and so why would you have an intervention if you didn't know someone was using something and I, I just I kind of marvel over the human mind and its desire to keep you as safe as possible um, mm-hmm. And for me, that safety came in not knowing um, until, until, it was, until my brain was ready to, to hear that and absorb that and sit with what that means.
0: You ask many profound questions about the meaningfulness of friendship, about death and mourning, and about the way... We carry the dead with us. For me, the most important and lasting question that you ask is unanswerable, which makes it quite painful. The question is, what do we owe the dead? How do they wish to be remembered? And in your memorable words, am I doing it right? Can Mm. you talk about this impossible problem of honoring the dead?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's where the, where the notion don't speak ill of the dead comes from, from the desire to honour them. And we think that to honour means to only look at the beautiful and the golden. Um, I personally believe that to honour means to hold it all in your hands and, um, and really live with the complexities of human beings. I don't think it's helpful to kind of whitewash someone's history. And what is the legacy of Larissa? I mean, now it's some of her legacy is this book. And I think that feels nice and it feels right, Um, especially as she was someone who adored literature so much. Um, I saw the other day that my book is sitting in City Lights bookstore, the very famous bookstore in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I remember that... When I moved to San Francisco, she made me bring her back. When I next came to London, made me bring her back a tote bag from that bookstore because she adored it and she just needed a piece of it. And so to have Mm -hmm. her sitting in it now feels so right. Um, And so I don't know how other people who loved her will choose to kind of continue her legacy and honor her. But for me, it feels like an achievement that I did it. And I, and I think I'm saying this aloud for the first time, because there's a lot of imposter syndrome attached to my authorhood, but it's really nice to look at the thing that I did and go, oh, shit, (laughs) she would love this so much. Exactly. This is exactly what she would have wanted. Hmm.
0: I love that, and I love the story about uh, about city lights because mm-hmm. I feel like it's it's such an icon, and the fact that she loved it and and would be able to see this Sorry. this tribute that you Please. that you made for her is, I think, that's just such a wonderful thing to have, have made of this this very real and very wonderful friendship. Before I let you go, I, I'm wondering if you might share uh, a couple recommendations of books that you've been reading and loving recently.
1: Yes. Uh, speaking of San Francisco, I'm currently reading Jennifer Egan's um, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which I've never oh, fantastic. read. Fantastic. And I, yeah, I adore. It. I saw her speak um, in San Francisco a few weeks ago, and I just, I just love it. It's such a, such a fabulous book. Um, I. Also enjoying flux by Jin. Woo. Um, that is a fabulous book, not to plug my own publisher, but it's very good. They really picked a good one. no, um, i can man. I can
0: corroborate. it is it is <laughs> yeah. a fantastic book. <laughs>
1: it's phenomenal. It really is. I really like my year of rest and relaxation um, mm. by Otessa, and I've never said her last name out loud. I want to say it's
0: Moshe, Faye, but I'm I'm not Moshe
1: positive. Moshe, that's such a beautiful name. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, that is one of my faves. I'm currently toying around with a um a book of fiction that uh, mm. draws on some of the themes in that book, and so um, I'm kind of in this helter skelter world world of reading books like that
0: right now. Well, those those three are fantastic recommendations. And I can't recommend enough The Dead Are Gods, which I think is such a powerful testament to friendship. And I'm so I feel very lucky that I got to read it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate the chance to talk with you so much.
1: Thank you. I loved it.
0: all from me for now. My great thanks to Irini Carson for sharing so much about her fabulous debut memoir, The Dead Are Gods. You can find links to purchase The Dead Are Gods and all of Irini's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast shirt, and ways to get in contact As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. This will help bring in more listeners and allow the show to grow. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.